of the Pedagogy Matters podcast. The purpose of this podcast is to bring to the fore some key topics of conversation in relation to learning and teaching, to discuss, to break these down and provide snippets, advice and guidance as how we can integrate these into our daily practice. Today I'm delighted to be joined by Ed Hall. Ed, welcome, how are you? Yeah, very well, thanks very much for having me, Johnny. I appreciate the invite. I appreciate your time, Ed. And Ed, am I right in thinking, obviously you are a senior lecturer in sports coaching, sport, exercise and rehabilitation at Northumbria University. Yeah, spot on. That's a kind of mouthful, must be a shorter way of saying that as well. <laughs> a good job, you didn't have to list all the letters after my name as well, you'd be here for a week. <laughs> no, good, I'll let you do that, not me. Well, no, Ed, great, well, thanks for joining me. I know probably listeners, I think, actually another sports lecturer, but obviously when we've talked a, a lot kind of prior to this podcast and, and obviously with other colleagues, I think there's a lot of transferable elements from the kind of world of sports coaching and the lecturing. And obviously today you've done a lot of work um, and elements that you can share with us in a second that really kind of we can look at how they link more broadly to, to the role of a lecturer or a teacher or education more broadly. So I think it's useful to start with a bit of context if you don't mind in terms of what your background is or kind of what the real topics of, of kind of work that you've focused on within your time. Yes, yeah, so my, my research interests are, are fundamentally concerned with revealing more about the complexities that sport professionals navigate in their everyday working lives and particularly how these complexities are rooted in the relationships and the interactions that are fundamental to how coaches but equally we could say how educators teachers physiotherapists it doesn't matter who you're talking about yeah. most people rely upon it undertake their roles um and i guess i've I've got to that point via probably what people would consider a non-traditional route um, in the sense that I didn't go straight from school to university, then did a PhD and then fell into a, a lecturing role. Um, yeah. I've certainly, I, I guess, responded to the, to the situations at the time and, and taken opportunities and found opportunities and um, in order to move forward. So I didn't do particularly well out of school um, and I had no interest in going to university initially. I was destined for military pursuits, um, which I'm fairly pleased I didn't end up doing now looking back. But, um, I went to uh, Newcastle College to, to do a foundation degree in sport. Um, I didn't really know what I wanted to do I was I had taken a year out like a traveling year um, during which I got quite ill and injured and started coaching rugby with my sister's rugby team down at the local club just as a, a thing to do really probably to please my parents to to not be sat around the house just convalescing um, but to be doing something with some of the knowledge that I'd generated as a rugby player and then as a, a an interest in, in PE at school and then saw the college as a great way to be able to learn a bit more about that as I got more interested in it and then that spiraled on and whilst I was working full-time either in community roles for England rugby or then subsequently in in more high performing roles um, if you like as a professional coach then topped up that degree um, which I finished at the college and then went to Loughborough to do a master's over a couple of years did various different coaching jobs 
um, before I then I was fortunate to secure a, a PhD scholarship and spent uh, the best part of four years sort of developing this interest in, in the complexities of practice. And, and so, yeah, I, my, my practice has, has always been very much about recognizing the connections between theory and, and practical experience, because that's how I've arrived at this subject. And I think it's how a lot of people in, in coaching and in sport in general tend to arrive in their roles is that they've operated in practice and been fascinated or curious about the intricacies of, of it in whichever domain they were sort of turned on to and then wanted to know more you know and, and, and college or further education or higher education offered a mechanism for them to be able to go beyond what's offered within their practical realm to deepen that knowledge and understanding and and i'm just really fortunate that in part of my job is i keep getting to do that so i as much as i'm a, a researcher and educator um i'm actually learning about the thing i'm most passionate about every day because it's, it's part of my job to keep finding out more and then to be able to help other people understand it as well no that's fantastic it's got a really interesting journey and obviously a lot of the elements you were saying there are i'm going to say are quite similar to the fe sector more broadly in terms of which is underpinned by vocation education by by lecturers with a dual career who will have their their background their vocation first and like so then they come into teaching to try and embed elements and develop people within their field you know so there's some really interesting kind of crossovers there straight away and you touched upon that obviously kind of what you're currently doing so Northumbria you're obviously involved heavily in the research side of things and you're saying that you're still actively working within the coaching sector and what sort of topics are you are you exploring within the coaching sector within that work yeah, I mean, the, the research that we've done to date is, is focused on a, a number of features of coaching that cross over with the realities of working across a number of different um, professions. One of these, I, I'll give you a couple of examples. One of these is around reflecting yeah. and how we reflect in order to learn from our experiences. And, and the, the motives really for me wanting to undertake this research which actually focused on myself. So I was writing about my own experiences of reflection within an action research process was the frustration that I felt that I went on loads of training and professional development courses. I did all my levels as a coach. I yeah. went on every teaching further education development session that was available. And all of them had some form of reflection embedded within them. And it seemed to me that people saw reflection as being this panacea like it, it solved everything and it was the, the key to unlocking all of our experiential learning and, and benefit to ourselves. And yet, when I went on these courses, nobody told me how to do it. Yeah. It was like it was like it was assumed to be a kind of natural inbuilt skill that you're just born with and everybody can do. And um, at best we were maybe shown a model of reflection, like here's Gibbs's cycle. Um, which is great because it's really useful and it's derived from evidence and it provides a cycle and a, but it's a pretty surface level view. There's not a lot of the how in the model or in any of the models that, that might be available to, to us. And so the first issue that really struck me in, in terms of the, the research that we did was around we given little or no support about how to reflect. But equally, and this is the second issue, it's assumed that reflection will lead to good stuff 
that, that, that it'll be unproblematically beneficial to us um, when we do it. And actually what the research then highlighted was the, the highly emotional and potentially damaging effects that the reflection can have when it's done without support mm -hmm. um, and when it's not shaped by some kind of a framing structure of something that, that drives our interest in reflection towards things that may benefit our, our practice in particular ways. Um, and so through this, through this research, what uh, myself and Shirley Gray, um, who I published the work alongside, came to develop was a set of structured questions, essentially, um, adapted from the work of Johns, who's a, whose research is, is about nursing practice, um, and who's written quite well about uh, reflection in that domain. And, and then what I've done is I've subsequently used those reflective questions to help guide a deeper level of reflection with the people that I now mentor in coaching and business and elsewhere, but also as a mechanism to deal with that more kind of immediate reflection that we want to do when we experience critical incidents in our sessions, whether that's a teaching session or a, a coaching practice session or a, a business meeting or whatever, but actually as a means to engage with it more deeply. And that reflective practice has evolved over time and it's been informed by the subsequent research that I've done. So to give you a second example of the sort of types of work that we're doing, our most recent um, paper, which is due to be published soon in Sport Management Review, it's focused on this hybrid nature of um, working lives. And particularly in this case, it was an international rugby coach and by hybrid work, what we were talking about and interested in was this reality for lots of us that operates across, again, a range of different professions that in this head coach's role, they weren't just expected to be a good head coach, a good coach on the grass, if you like, but they were also meant to be a good leader and a manager of other people. Yeah. So they're not just that the title says coach, but in reality, they've got this hybrid identity and this reflects, I think, a lot of the complex realities of many working lives. You know, we all have multiple intersecting responsibilities that ultimately place us into unique relationships with a range of different stakeholders, given whatever position it is that we have. And, and through those roles, we have to pursue our own interests, the interests of the people that we're interacting with, and the interests of the organisation that we we work for. And what this paper, I think, underlines of interest perhaps across a number of different professions is that when you boil it down, our central task, the thing that we're trying to pursue through our work, whether it is a coach or as a physiotherapist or as a teacher or an educator of some kind, ultimately we're trying to influence people. Yeah. Now that's perhaps about influencing someone's learning in the classroom or someone's adherence to a re rehabilitation um, program as, as a physiotherapist or, or influencing somebody to stop smoking or, you know, whatever it is. The realities of, of our work is that we can't hold a gun to somebody's head and force learning to happen or force adherence to happen or force motivation or enjoyment. Actually, what we're doing is we're much more 
like orchestrators were steering and guiding and nudging and shaping people in order to achieve these outcomes, whatever the outcomes might need to be. And, and it's ironic then, in my opinion, that these skills, this skill of influence is almost ignored in the training and development that we give people to prepare for those professions. Um, and, and I'll give you an example. I was in the pub before lockdown with a group of dads from the, the, the school, one of whom is a barrister. Yeah. So their, their job is literally to influence a jury to believe a story. And we were talking about our, our careers and, and I said, oh, have you ever had any support or mentoring around your interactional skills and how that might be useful to you to in, influence people? And it astounded me that this person whose job it literally is to influence somebody to think something or a group of people to think something, they've never had any support in how to influence people to socially interact with them in, in ways that might be influential. And, and part of the problem with this is that these skills, these relationship skills and interactional skills are often positioned or represented as if they're like the art of teaching as if they're a mystical element of coaching or business or, or education that we can't get a handle on. And, and it's wrongly assumed as well that when we're talking about the centrality of relationships to the things that we do, we're talking about soft skills. Yeah. It's these things that are intangible and hard to get hold of, being nice and fluffy and warming and embracing and, and so on. But, this is a, a bit of a misunderstanding because, yes, we need to cultivate purposeful relationships that are going to generate immediate value and, and also that have future potential for us. And we're going to draw upon and benefit from those relationships in various different ways. But also, we, you know, if we take Gene Hartley's point, a great researcher in this area, relationship skills are also about tough skills as well as soft skills. So it's the ability to stand up to pressure from others, to negotiate robustly, to, um, to handle conflict in ways that supports the achievement of some kind of constructive outcomes, both for ourselves and for other people. And so actually building on Gene Hartley's work and a whole host of other great sociologists and scholars in the, in the area, there's a significant body of research that enables us to talk about the science of interaction and the science of relationships, not in terms of like giving you a blueprint or a magic bullet that can instantly win people over in some kind of heroic way, but actually in ways that can help us to, to really pay deep attention to the interactions that we have and the ways that we go about our teaching, our coaching, our, our professions because to do those things well it's really skillful it's skillful in the sense that it's something that can be refined and developed through purposeful attention but equally it's skillful because the stuff that we're doing is at the absolute coalface of the complexities of human beings working together and, and and i've yet to meet anybody who would defend the argument that you can do coaching or teaching or medicine or any career without what we're doing right now which i've mostly dominated i apologize no, which is this interactiveness you know it's the, the the learning that that might happen as a result of this podcast isn't constructed by you the captain of the ship if you like or me the person that's uh sort of on board with you it's in the 
it's in the in-between. It's the way that we co-produce knowledge through our interactions together. And, and that'll be the same for people that listen to it, who may or may not benefit by their interaction with this information that we, we generate together, which will actually have some meaning or no meaning or great meaning for people when they bring it to their own experiences. So it's it's always in the in-between of our interactions that stuff's happening. And yet it's rarely at the forefront of the way in which we prepare people for the ways they do their work. No, I think you're absolutely right, Ed. I think the, the challenge that we're going to have in the remaining 20 or so minutes is is unpicking some of those different elements there, because what you just said there for the last how long was really fascinating in terms of firstly around reflection. You know, you're absolutely right. It's a core thing that is part of every process. You know, that, that's what we've been critical of the sector I'm, I'm part of and I came from, but too often is the reflection part of the process has been ticky box. It's done yet. Yeah, I've done it. Great. Move on. It's going to be a lot more cultural, and it then leads into those different elements you're talking around, around the importance of interaction. And I think, as a new teacher, when I joined the sector, it was all about what can I get students to do? How can I make sure they're busy? If they're busy, they're learning. You know, this, this goes back to a lot of myths around learning styles, around you know, that's not good on that path either. But I guess as I matured as a lecturer, as a teacher, and as a manager you know, the importance of interactions became a lot more apparent. You know, it's really important from what you're seeing there. And I know we talked prior to this conversation, I kind of wrote down a couple of notes from you, which I think is really key to this conversation, which I'm going to be keen to unpick as well. You can talk about two bits. One was making every interaction count. And I love the fact you use the term interaction. You know, so it's not a meeting, it's not a discussion, it's an interaction, which shows it actually goes two ways. And a second bit of that, bit of that was the power of perspective. Because as you alluded to there a little bit, you know, that head coach example analogy, they're working with Craigie in the world of rugby, 22, 30, 35 different individuals with different problems, different backgrounds, different experiences, different views on interaction. And it's how can that one person be a conduit across all those different individuals. And in a lecturer world, exactly the same. My former world, some lecturers engage with 150, 200 learners in a given week. So, yeah, so... And you're absolutely right in terms of there's no magic bullet, there's, there's no definitive answer. But I'm keen to understand from your research, really, what have been some of the, the core things that have come out around those topics of horror perspective or of how to make interactions count? I think the first thing that the people that I've worked with, either as a mentor, or as a coach educator, or the students that I've supported and worked alongside, is getting to grips with what this complexity is made up of. So you know, we, we take this idea of uncertainty or ambiguity. Yeah. All of our interactions are uncertain. You know, you've, you've done a lot of prep around today, but ultimately you've turned up not knowing a lot of stuff about how today's gonna go. And I'm in, in exactly the same boat. Yeah. So, so the interactions that we have, the relationships that we have are continuously intention or wrestling with uncertainty, ambiguity. And part of that is because we can, and, and you, you mentioned this, uh, much more eloquently than I'll probably talk about it before, we're never in total control yeah. of what's going to happen. You know, we the control that we exert over other people, um, in this case, you're the captain of the ship, so the control you exert over me is always, to a degree, limited. You can ask me questions, you can you can use the word briefly in, in, in the way that you frame those questions in order to get me to, to be a bit more concise and work within the time constraints that you operate within but you've got no ultimate 
control over me doing that. You're relying upon me responding to that and picking up on it in a particular way. Secondly, we're operating under limited awareness of how other people are experiencing things. Yep. So, you know, the, the, the individuals and groups that we work with in a lecture theatre is probably a great example. You know, I've, I've delivered lectures to two, three hundred people, but at least then, compared to now when we're doing it via the mechanism of a, a video conferencing facility, I could actually pick up on some of those cues in the way in which they are interacting with me. And by interaction, I mean the totality of our, our verbal and nonverbal interchange, our exchange of information. So, you know, at the moment you're you're in a pose, which I know people won't see on the podcast, but it's a pose that, that says that you're listening to me and you're, you're paying attention and you're interested. And I can pick that up because you're nodding and you're stroking your chin, which suggests that you're thinking about either what you're going to say next or about what I'm saying to you. And you look reasonably relaxed, so I'm not kind of imposing things in such a, uh, an authoritative or, or aggressive way that it, it's something that you're defensive about. But when I'm in those environments, even with 200 people there, I can pick up on the knitted brow of confusion or the lean forward of interest from somebody or the collapsed head on the desk of exhaustion and, and, and desperation for the session to end. And as a result of that, I can then adapt and, and refine what I do next. And so part of the complexity is we can never know exactly how people are experiencing the same situations that we're in or experiencing our interactions with them, we're only ever making our best guess based upon some of these quite subtle cues. The third element here, I think, is around the fact, and you mentioned it again before, you're operating in a space where it's almost certain that people aren't exactly going to always share your views, your beliefs, your ideas. And so that's one of the reasons why we're saying, talking about influence, because actually if I want to influence people, I, I not only need to be able to influence those people who are already on board, but what about those people who have various different beliefs or expectations about what it is that we're doing together? And how do I then work with them in order to shape and, and mold um, and nudge them along the same lines that would generate some positive interactions for all of us? Remembering that as coaches and educators, we're doing that for large groups of people simultaneously. So we're having to operate in a space in which we're unlikely to keep everybody happy. And, and also we're trying desperately to respond to and move everyone forward in what, whichever ways each individual can be moved. And then the final element of this, just to, to speak about uncertainty, is, is about the fact that I could have tried something with you yesterday that won't work again today. And whatever I do today isn't guaranteed to work the next time we interact with each other. And that's just one person to one person. You know, we're talking about 200 people or, or 50 people in a rugby squad and all our assistant coaches and medical staff and the administrators and our hierarchy. You know, that, that makes our work incredibly complex. Um, and so the, the foundations of, I think, supporting people to, to be able to grapple with this is to reveal this complexity for what it is. So to, to deal with some of those concepts that we've just talked about, but then also to consider how each interaction is taking place at the micro, micro level of, of what's going on. 
and and you can do that through um, paying attention to the different interests that people hold yeah. so when people are acting towards each other they're always acting um, in order to either protect or to advance some form of interests and they might be self-interests but equally it might be um, material interests or relational interests it might be organizational interests or even and you talked about it before this idea of like cultural ideological interests so the ideas that people have about what's good teaching here what does good coaching look like and what's held to be the norm in this particular environment because that shapes if you like the possibilities and the freedoms that we can operate within um, and, and can therefore help us to understand a how we're acting and b how people are acting towards us in order that again without a magic bullet we can then start to more critically consider well how do i align my practice in ways that generates good outcomes for us here given the respective interests that are in play and, and i think those interests have been really beneficial um, to people in coaching and interestingly enough they actually come from the work of, of somebody called Geert Kelchemans who whose research is all built around initial teacher education um, and so there's this real cross-fertilization I think between work that's happened in education which is a much more long established yeah. you know science than than in coaching but again we're able to borrow and and reciprocate with beneficial information that can help us to think about our respective practices no, I think absolutely right there because again, you know, to quote Sir Ken Robinson, he said kind of key to effective teaching is relationships. And what you just said there in terms of all the different disciplines or subject areas or roles or whatever people do, for things to be effective, relationships have to be at the forefront of that. And you're absolutely right. And I think it's important as you know, as people listen to this podcast and others, and I think this has really been heightened, if I'm honest, by the last 15, 16 months of, or 12 months now, I keep saying 15, 16 months of, of lockdowns and so on, is that those cues that you were talking about before, you know, when you analyse me, my behaviours, you know, but you do that with, with learners and with cohorts in front of you. That's been a big loss, you know, for lecturers, both a operational loss in terms of not knowing if their students are receiving information, but also an emotional loss, because for lecturers, they get a buzz off their students. They get that positive reinforcement off their students when they get something, when there's that light bulb moment. You know, I think for, for some, that's been a, a real big part of their work that they have missed, which, which I'm going to say has probably affected their relationship building as well, which probably I didn't take for granted. I know a lot of lecturers probably didn't take, for, I'm sorry, did take for granted that that was part of their role. But I think it's really important to kind of really kind of drain this back to, or, or kind of bring it all back to what you said in terms of, the micro elements of relationships, you know, and, and, and how they are built and how they are developed over time. And, and I think for people first and foremost, just to just to be aware of that. Like I say, I think it's taken for granted. It's just a done thing. You're a coach, you've got this qualification, you're a teacher, you've got your TQFA, PGC, you must be good at that. And as you said, they're really interesting before. That's not taught. So do you feel actually we'll put it on the spot? Do you feel that should be taught more Prominently in future, that should be a part of programs for for barristers, for teachers, for nurses, for for anybody. Yeah, hundred percent. And 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 it doesn't mean that it it sits at the exclusion of all the other things. You know, coaches yeah. still need to understand the technical, tactical, physical, psychological 
components of what it means to coach, just as we need pedagogical knowledge and um, a whole range of other different ologies can help us to develop our, our, our practice. But you could argue that without this central tying component of relationships and interaction, that actually we'll never maximize the potential of all of those things. So as a coach, I could have the greatest tactical understanding of rugby in the world, the best strategies to break down the opposition and to, to succeed, score lots of points and win championships. If I can't persuade my assistant coaches of that strategy, if I can't get the buy-in of my athletes, if the board don't believe in my approach, it doesn't matter. I can't do my job. I can't, I can't do anything with that because the realities of all of our practice, and this is true of lots of professions, you know, coaching. Coaches are judged on the performance of their athletes, yeah. ultimately. Teaching. Teachers are judged on the outcomes their students achieve. Sure. Physiotherapists are judged on the physical you know, rehabilitation achieved by their patients. Now, there's a key... Um, a bit of pathos almost in all of that, which is that actually my work is essentially being judged on the basis of somebody else's performance. And I don't just mean performance in the sense of whether they win or not, but there's a whole host of different things that people can try and achieve within that performance. And yet, and the thing that sits centrally to achieving that is this influential relationship. But it's the thing that it's like a, a big, gap isn't it there's just the there's kind of me on one side of the grand canyon and and a group of people on the other and, and what this takes the form of currently i think through a lot of professional development and, and preparation programs is we teach people things to do at other people so we teach them how to behave at a set of students or we teach them a theory of practice towards other people as opposed to teaching them the exchange the interaction the, the interchange that occurs between them. And, and Nick Crosley talks brilliantly about this in, in his work on relational sociology, when he says that interaction is precisely that, it's interaction. It's, it's a set of people acting, but intertwined together just as we are. And, and it, it requires a real sensitivity to those things. And so 100% in terms of your question, it, it, it should be absolutely at the core of the way in which we develop a whole host of different professions around which and, and infused into and woven through, we can then develop all of the technical capacities and competencies and understanding that is critical and to, to then being able to leverage those, those relational skills in order to achieve good outcomes in their roles. I think there's some, again, as always, some really interesting points there, Ed. And I'm, I'm, I'm just going to make a point for the listeners here because obviously we have a lot of listeners who are lecturers, but also a lot of listeners who are managers. You know, so I guess my, let's say, a bit of nourishment, because I know you've kind of, that's something I kind of Mark Scootle picked up off you, kind of forget takeaways, let's have a bit of nourishment. I'm going to come to you in a second for a few bits of nourishment around those topics. But for people listening, to really reflect on, yeah, relationships with students is to how interactive are they? You know, thinking back to last week or last month or even yesterday, when this goes out, it'll be a Wednesday, so that'll work, it's a Tuesday, um, as to how effective were those interactions? What worked well? What didn't? Why? 
And again, the same for managers. And then in, when we're developing new staff, existing staff, sustained staff around that space that we're providing and whether our periods of reflection or periods of interaction are for ticky box or actually if they've got a real purpose. And I think, I think it's clear to say, and you'll probably clarify this from you, and hopefully these don't have to take a long time. It's just got to have a clear and specific purpose and then be followed through and be impacted upon over time. 100%. And, and it's all, it's the definition of a relationship, essentially, is the sort of history of interaction that we've had, which is shaping our current interactions. Yeah. And the belief that we're likely to have future interactions, which is also shaping how we're currently interacting. So, you know, take us, for example, we've, we've met in the past and we've talked to one another and we have a sense of how each other operates and the way in which we, we will work together. And that has informed the way in which you've then approached this into set of interactions because you've been able to think ahead about how I'm likely to behave and how you can influence my behavior in ways that's beneficial to you and to your your interests but equally the conscious that we might also meet further down the line yeah and so we need to act now in ways that's going to protect and generate expectations of of interaction that that might work really well when we next interact and and in lots of cases, as teachers, as coaches, as, as lecturers, those interactions as managers as well are happening on an almost daily basis. You know, as, as teachers, we're not only designing our schemes of work and our, our individual session plans, teaching plans around what's happening in this one set setting. We're thinking about what's come before. How, where have people arrived at this session from? And how am I going to be able to move them in ways that links us forward towards sessions in the future? And even though we've done that planning now, when we get to that session in the future, we're not guaranteed to have got to where we thought we might be. So we're going to have to then come back and think, where did they get to the last time and how can I move them forward? And so our interactions are always iterative. They're always happening in these progressive, emergent cycles. And, and for those uh, managers that you alluded to who who are trying to coordinate and um, direct and funnel and, um, and and inform and influence people in in the way that they do things you know we we need to be really mindful of of, of the again those different interests that might be operating so you, you you talked about before actually you know the student who the level of interaction we might get well actually why is that student fairly quiet how does their quietness their their sort of removal of themselves to the back of the class and they're keeping their head down how does that serve their interests well maybe their interests are about not making errors in front of their peers because they maybe have relationships with those peers that undermine their self-confidence when they choose to speak up well, how might we then go about engaging with those interests in ways that that benefits them? Can we work with them beyond the session that where we're not going to get the best out of them by putting them on the spot and demanding that they contribute in a particular way? How might we facilitate their growth and development and their movement towards feeling enabled to, to contribute and to interact there if that's desirable? beyond the, the immediate context that we have. And again, these papers that we've undertaken, it's highlighted that 
you know, we often think about teaching as happening in the classroom or coaching happening on the pitch. But in every situation that I've been in, we're defined as a coach way beyond the realms of the crossing the whitewash and onto the rugby pitch. We're a, we're a coach when we bump into our, our athletes in Sainsbury's. We're a, a coach when we bump into a, one of our athletes' parents in the pub because they've known us in that role and they've formed certain expectations of us. And that informs the way we then need to practice or act appropriately in, in, their, in that present interaction with them. Because again, how we, how we behave there might shape people's expectations of us in the future and, and have various consequences, positive and negative. So there's a whole host of things in this idea that each interaction counts because it's connected to a lineage of previous interactions and either serves to reinforce or to revise people's expectations of us because of that. And it also has this future implication in terms of what people will come to expect of us when we next interact with them. And, it, and it's therefore really dialing our, our attention into that. Um, Mason, in, in terms of noticing, noticing opportunities to interact, appropriately talked about this importance of, of increasing the range and decreasing the grain size of what we're paying attention to and it's almost like we need to move beyond those things that we stereotypically or typically pay attention to in our practice but then we also need to look at them with a magnifying glass and, and when we start doing that we'll probably notice so much more about the ways in which we're enacting our roles as managers or coaches or teachers or physiotherapists or, or whatever and be able to do so much more with that new set of skills no i think there's some again some really interesting points there and the, yeah the really focusing it focusing in on something specific within those interactions you know is a yeah, a bit of notion i'm going to take away because i was often again being critical myself in, in both current roles and prior yeah you go into a meeting and you, you, you talk about a whole host of things which sometimes you have to operationally but also when you're trying to develop the hearts and minds of people and share a vision, take them on a journey with you, it's really about them and, and ensuring on the, the interaction element is that you're doing your thoughts on some smaller elements there. It was interesting, just kind of a final bit for me really, is I'm sure you've come across the High Performance Podcast with Jake Humphrey. Um, they, they kind of spoke to Kevin Sinfield the other week and they thought, well, what does high performance mean to you? Or where does it start? And he alluded to kind of what you said there, a little bit linking to the hybrid identities. Is that in terms of you, you mean, undertaken multiple roles and he's just saying well high performance starts at home in terms of your daily values and your core and who you are and that's where culture comes from you know and i'm sure in your world far more than me you know a lot of, a lot of colleagues talk about culture and a high performing culture or just a culture that works but that's just underpinned for me by effective relationships effective interactions and really just doing the right thing you know it sounds really simple but it's i know it's not but those are the fundamental principles yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and and that's where we come back to this complexity is people's ideas of what the right thing are is are different. And when we talk about culture, we're talking about shared behaviors, essentially, so that, you know, you, you, and you get the sense when you go into any environment, what's the atmosphere like here? How are people treating each other? How do people treat each other when they're not together? How do they talk about one another? What, what does their behavior tell us about what's valued and what's not valued in this environment? And I think a lot of 
teachers, coaches, managers, etc. They, when they first go into an environment, they want to impose a culture because it's seen as being this very sort of heroic, charismatic thing that that great leaders and managers and so on can do. But actually, they're working with a group of people who have their own beliefs, who who have a sense of who they are and how they should behave and what they should do, and and enforcing or or imposing something upon them is likely to generate some alignment for some people and then also some resistance as well and and perhaps then a way of of um of considering this as an alternative vision for how we might do it is how can we bring people together what is it that people sharing that they're maybe not aware of you know i've, I've had conversations with with elite coaches, really, really high performing you know, international rugby coaches who've said that the greatest conversation they've had with a player was when they discovered you know, the, the real like light bulb moment that they both kept chickens at home and they suddenly had this shared interest. Well, well what is it you get out of keeping chickens? You know, how, well, I, I just like you know, the, the, the process of caring for something and, Oh, that's really, you know, and, and actually that was the thing that then gave them this insight into how they could work together. You know, my my um, mentor at Northumbria is amazing at this. Is he'll, Paul Potrack will say, what do you think we should do in this situation? How should we act here? And I'll say, oh, I think we should do A, B, C, and D. Oh, he says, I really like D. D is a brilliant idea. Let's do D. That's fantastic. That's really clever. Really like that. Go on, go and do D. We'll do that. Now, what Paul's actually said is A, B, and C are rubbish. <laughs> but what he's thought about is what are my interests here? Yeah. How is his interaction with me right then going to shape my motivation and, and my contribution, my my goodwill, my effort in order to take forward something that shapes both of our futures? Well, he could sit there and he could say, I don't like A, or B is a bit rubbish. Yes, you've not thought the C through. Well, D, D will do. That'll be all right. Yeah. All right. Probably, probably even the fact that you've got the culture whereby you provide four options, whereas typically you go to a meeting and someone provides one option, or you send, you know, so that, that type of, when you talk about future planning, or, or, or future planning conversations, interactions, there's probably that happened there as well. Yeah, but part of his part of his plan is he's got to he wants to give people space yep. and time that they can actually hit on something good that aligns with him. So if okay. he cuts them off, off after one um, the first option, then it's then incumbent on him because he's wrestled control of that conversation back to himself to then provide the outcome. Well, then it feels like the people haven't really had much say in what they're going to do. And but if he approaches it now, like I said, this isn't the magic bullet. Yeah, but it. But it's really clever, isn't it? The way that he's thought through, how can I get people on my side by giving them the illusion that they've determined what we're going to do, yeah. which, I, which I know will get the best work out of them. And, and so I need to give them sufficient space and room and I might need to scaffold it with some questions or a bit of, bit of a nudge. Or what would that look like? Tell me a bit more about that so that they, that they trust in it. But then once they're convinced by it, they then make me feel like the cleverest person in the world because they go, and I leave that meeting going, God, Paul Potrack thought my option D was really good. How great is that? I'm going to go home and put 72 hours of work into how I can make option D the best thing ever. And he's gone home thinking, God, option D scraped across the line there, but it could come through for us. You know, it could be all right. 
but because of the way he's influenced me, because of how he's nudged and steered and orchestrated that interaction, he's created a potential future set of interactions that are going to start from a better place and which are going to lead me down there. And, and equally, on the flip side, he would be able to have robust uh, conversations where he, he challenged what I was saying and, and, and made me think differently through a more authoritative, direct no but in ways that still left me going, I really want to do that. And that I understand why that's that idea I had is not possible. Yeah. And so interactions exist in the, the collaboration and the conflict. And, and we can't always talk about them as just these soft, fluffy skills that we assume people have. We need to get it. Well, how are we getting people on side? How are we manipulating and, and, and interacting with them in authentic ways? Not, you know, we're, Often people talk about this as like we put on a false mask and then we get people to do stuff. Well, Paul's not being false in saying I like option D, but he's dialing it up in a way that gets the best out of that interaction for all of us because it, it benefits me, it benefits him, and it's very authentic to our interaction, just as he would do in avoiding certain behaviours or dialing certain things down about the way he would say, no, I don't think that's a good idea. And, the, and these are the skills that in our everyday interactions are what enables us to get stuff done. Um, and that's really what I think, you know, if you, if you were looking for nourishment, I think it would be around this idea that when we're interacting with people, we've got to be able to map the terrain. You know, what's, whose interests are in play here? Who matters? Who's interacting with who? If I do something with them, how does that have a knock-on effect over there? So we've mapped that terrain. Then we've got to get people on board. We've got to get people on our side in some way. So using that mapping, we've got to kind of figure out who's who can we invest in here that's going to really follow us and, and work hard with us. How might we invest in people that have a, a domino effect on others, like a, a dropping a stone in the pond almost, it ripples out, because my best efforts could be spent on working with this person for six months, but actually if I work with that person really closely for two months, it might have a knock-on effect that makes my interactions here more efficient. And then we've got to get some stuff done. You know, ultimately we can't get away from the fact that as managers, leaders, coaches, educators, there's some things that are central to our work which we need to get done as well. But those preceding steps about understanding people and then using that understanding in order to be able to work with and influence them crucial to, to that last step of, of enacting our roles and doing the things that we we all think about when we say teacher, coach, physio, manager, you know, so it's it's all intertwined in those ways, I think. Yeah, no, I totally agree. I'm just busy thinking around, yeah, there's so many transferable elements from these conversations into managers, into lecturers, in both their, their short courses, their long courses, but also their relationships with colleagues and, and so on and so forth. So yeah, I think there's a whole host of things just to reflect on. And as we've said a couple of times, these things don't happen overnight. You know, it's about having that, that, that forward thinking. And I guess my key bit of nourishment is really taking away that the, the principle of, of what are you wanting within future interactions and kind of working backwards from those as well and making sure they're part of every interaction to, to make those effective there as well. But Ed, I really, really appreciate your time. You know, so much information there. We'll be talking for two or three hours. I mean, I'll try and call you back for a, for a further podcast to talk through some of these in a bit more detail. But no, thank you very much for your time. I really appreciate that, Ed. 
and uh, best of luck in your work going forward. Yeah, thanks, Johnny. I really appreciate it. Enjoy. Enjoy. Enjoy.